If only I could bottle up this glorious moment and take out the cork and relive it whenever I want to. Hello, hello, hello. This is me and my friend Pete, the podcast that explores all things The Amazing Spider-Man. I'm your host, the mighty monologuing Motormouth. They call me Gerald. If this is your first time with us, welcome. If it isn't, welcome, 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 welcome back. This week, we're running through The Amazing Spider-Man number 25. Captured by J. Jonah Jameson. Our season one finale. In this season's final bonus episode, we've got Mark Spector, Moon Knight, number 40. In game. An apt title if you're ending a season and running through a story of the left fist of Conchu, who's brave or stupid enough to crash the Kips Bay embassy of the Latverian lion, none other than Dr. Doom himself. That's later. Right now? We've got Spidey courting violence. We've got JJ Tweedledee. We've got JJ versus Spidey. Spidey's pinned. One, two. Okay, okay, okay. Stop the rhyme. Stop him right now. We've got the second greatest character in Marvel comic book history's first appearance. Let's stop wasting time. We've got me. We've got you. We've got no further ado. We've got our season finale, The Amazing Spider-Man, number 25. Captured by J. Jonah Jameson. We made it, baby. We made it. Me and my best friend Pete. Old adventures, new critiques. He spins webs. I spin yarns. Kind of kooky, be forewarned. Look out. It's me and my friend Pete. Credits. The swing of script on this one was done by Stan Lee. The dazzling drawings were done by Steve Ditko. The loquacious lettering was done by Sam Rosen. So this is another SNSNS production. The cover. The cover of this beauty is simple and clean. We have The Amazing Spider-Man written in Spidey New Roman. The Amazing is written in maroon. And Spider-Man is written in Spidey Costume Red with Spidey Costume Blue shadowing the hero's name. All of this is set on top of a titanium yellow negative space. Beneath Spidey's name and a black banner caption box, Written in a dingy silver. I really love the color scheme of this cover. We've got the title of this issue. Captured by J. Jonah Jameson. Beneath that, we've got Spidey suited and booted in a dynamic pose. His left foot bent in front of him, his foot on its tiptoes. His right foot stretched out behind him, the toes of that foot pressed against the floor as well. His body is slightly leaning stage left, his right arm bent at the elbow, his hand pointing towards the roof of the cover. His left arm is out in front of him. Both hands have his thumbs and forefingers extended, and they're both spraying the greatest invention in the whole world from both wrists, Spidey's extra adhesive webbing. At what? A steel Tweedledee-shaped robot on spindly legs cloaked in shadow with an astronaut-shaped helmet and antennae poking out on both sides, but instead of a steel face, we have a monitor screen. And on that screen, the face of the miserable magnate, J. Jonah Jameson, a triumphant vindictive smile on his face. Why? Because extending from this Tweedledee-shaped machine are thick steel ropes that are coiled around Spider-Man from neck to toe. We knew it had to come to this eventually. The showdown 
we've been waiting for. Let's get into it. Page one opens to the sign of the spider and looks to the title of this issue. Captured by J. Jonah Jameson. Written in a white screen caption box in pink letters. Beneath this, in the shape of the letter I, we have eight circles with red borders. And inside of these circles, headshots of a who's who of our hero's cast of characters looking around like they're in the Brady Bunch squares. In the top row from left to right, the white-haired Mae Parker, a slight smile on her face, looking down at her nephew. Then, the brunette Betty Brant and Pearl staring straight on, smiling. Then, the blonde-haired Liz Allen, her circle slightly above Betty's, who she's glaring down at. Directly beneath Betty, we've got the half-man, half-amazing Pete Rock, the Pete part of his face wearing an aw shucks expression, staring straight on. Beneath Pete, his strawberry blonde hair and curls, right eye closed, left eyebrow arched, and staring up at our friend Pete with hate in his eye, Flash, fashion on trash, Thompson. The lower row, left to right, we have a man we don't know with olive blonde hair and a long, slim face. This is Smythe. Next to him, we have his Tweedledee-shaped machine. Next, and finally, J. Jonah Jameson, cigar in his mouth, staring out of the corner of his eyes at the Tweedle machine going to call it of course i'm gonna call it the tweedle machine the spidey bunch back to a yellow caption box stage right of the title reads do you think spidey's had trouble before just wait till you read this one and below stage left of the title a yellow arrow caption box points down to our hero spidey who is suited and booted on a rooftop his back to us sprinting around a dingy green pillar behind the spidey bunch circles the question in the arrow reads what happens to a superhero on the run when he has no place to go and on the opposite side of the pillars, the Tweedle Machine with JJ's maniacally smiling mug on the monitor. If I didn't know any better, I'd say the Tweedle Machine had its thick steel arms on its hips like it's gloating. And it kind of looks like a metal ninja turtle from this angle. Does that mean- The Tweedle Turtle Machine! On the bottom of this page, we get one final arrow caption box. Sturdy Steve Ditko dreamed up the plot of this tantalizing tale, and it's full of unexpected surprises. So turn the page and see if you can guess What's coming next? Steve Dicko getting sturdy and we're turning the page. Page two opens with a caption box. One of the many rewards of being a good student is the fact that a pretty gal like Liz Allen might ask you to help her with her studies as Peter Parker has just done. And we find the Goldenrod kid in his SJB suit and a diamond printed Goldenrod vest waving over his shoulder at the green sweatered purple skirted Liz Allen who's standing on her porch it's a nice porch. She's got an arch door and diamond porch light, light fixtures, porches dripping cash money. They are style flaring. Pete, as white bread as they come, says, Good night, Liz. Hope you dig those formulae now. I always remember Pete was kind of sheltered before he was the most amazing one, and I feel like he still gets the slang of the time wrong at times. Why would Liz dig formulas now? Liz doesn't reply, but she thinks that she digs Petey even more. New York City, being nine minutes away from Pete's house in the 616 universe, gives Pete an idea. He's going to go to the rooftop where he tossed his spider signal last issue to retrieve it. Beneath the light of the full moon and the skyscrapers of the greatest city on Earth, he uses his spidey sense to make sure the coast is clear and leaps three <laughs> stories straight up, no problem. He walks over to his spidey signal, bends down to pick it up, and spots three guys walking down the street. Pete doesn't trust them at all. He calls them seedy-looking characters, and if we know anything about Pete, we know he's a pretty decent judge of character so far. He's still got great instincts staring down at them. He thinks, The way they're going from car to car, they got auto scenes written all over them. Hmm, looks like they found the one they want. As the three guys walk up the street testing the door locks on the cars, Pete wastes no time. 
He starts unbuttoning his shirt, but before he gets the shirt off his shoulders, a police officer walks around the corner of the block the carjackers are walking on, and Pete thinks he can save himself some trouble. Pete's a busy kid, and after spending all evening with Liz Allen, he's tuckered out. Being called Petey can be more than a little tiring. But the officer, as oblivious as officers get, is about to walk right past the Burba Gang's Grand Theft Auto division. Pete's got an idea. He pops the spidey signal at the feet of Officer Oblivious, and when the officer looks up, Pete swings the light towards the Berber gang, who have just crowded around a green Oldsmobile. Bathed in the red sign of the spider, Sneaky Pete screams, Hey, what's going on here? Pee-wee shouts, Someone spotted us! A second later, Officer O pulls his pistol and races up the street, shouting at the gang to grab some sky. All the Berbers hands up, he shouts, Well, well, we've been looking for you three for some time now. They were looking for the Berbers. I bet the Burbas, most slippery gang in New York City. Pee-wee says their luck is rotten, and he's right. This has to be the 14th time the Burbas have been caught red-handed. They're lucky it didn't come with the prerequisite golden liability protocols. Fist, swing them if you got them. Not bothering to button his shirt, Pete grabs his camera and snaps some pictures of the action, hoping to sell them to J. Jonah Jameson, thinking everything is going his way for a change. He enters the Parker house a few minutes later, where Aunt May is in a purple cardigan and black dress in the den, straightening up. Pete says hello, wondering why Aunt May is still awake. And she replies, I wanted to wait till I knew you were safely home, Peter dear. And besides, there was the loveliest Joan Crawford movie on The Late Show. Lucille Faye-Lasseur, better known the world over as Joan Crawford, was an American dancer and actress whose career spanned six decades who, unsatisfied with her acting roles given in the beginning of her career, took that career by the horns and made her own lane. She embarked on a self-publicity campaign as a flapper, a woman who wore short skirts, bobbed hair, listened to jazz, and gave a big F you to what a woman was supposed to be. They smoked, they drank, they essentially did all the things men did that nobody complained about and lived their best lives. From 1930, where she ranked number one, to 1936, Crawford sat comfortably in the top 10 earners of box office performers. Why? Crawford found her niche in Hollywood, playing rags to riches women on a meteoric rise through the 20s and 30s, before reaching her box office peak at the end of the 30s, with the industry going so far as to label her box office poison. A far cry from being labeled the queen of the movies by Life magazine in 1937. The world was being particularly cold to one of the few people who transitioned from silent film to the talkies. But what does pressure bust? Pipes. Or makes? Diamonds. Or in this case, little golden statues named Oscar. Because after a two-year hiatus, Crawford burst back onto the scene in Mildred Pierce in 1945, winning an Academy Award for Best Actress along with a National Board of Review Award for the same. In 1953 and 54, she won Laurel Awards for her performances in Sudden Fear and Torch Song, respectively. Sudden Fear in particular earned her her third Oscar nod. In 1960, she received a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. And in 1970, she received the Cecil B. DeMille Award from the Golden Globes for her outstanding contributions to the world of entertainment. I think Crawford's career is a loud reminder that you decide when you start and you decide when you finish. So through the ether to the legendary Joan Crawford, thanks for the reminder. Back to. So May's been up waiting for Pete and Pete appreciates it. In the next panel, he's at his chemistry workstation. And I gotta say, I'm proud of Pete. He keeps a very clean workstation as a scientist. That's important. He's standing there with his shirt halfway unbuttoned, exposing the Spidey costume beneath. And we get to see how the sausage is made. The sausage? The Spidey costume. Pete's got a white shirt stretched out on the tabletop and is holding up the blue and red spiderweb fabric of his costume. He says he wishes May didn't worry so much and that he needs to work on his spare costume before bed. However, after only a dozen or so tiny pinpricks, 
Peter manages to finish his costume, and then, the next morning... Pete's in the background walking into the Daily Bugle as the miserable magnate stands in the foreground in a brown suit and SJB tie, a cohiba in his left hand, a smile on his lips as he wraps his right arm over the shoulder of a man with red hair in a gray suit, a maroon tie, and matching stingy brim hat. That is a nice suit. And if this wavy red hair guy looks familiar, he's one of JJ's club buddies, first seen in ASM number 23, the goblin and the gangsters, or pressed on all sides. Here on me and my friend Pete, back to. So JJ's got his arm wrapped around this guy and he's telling the man that he's gonna take care of his ad in the paper, personally, and that he'll see the guy at the club tonight. Pete thinks because this guy's smiling, he must be important. The guy walks off and Pete walks up to JJ, handing the miserable magnate the photos he took of the Burba gang last night. JJ rifles through him and says, I think fairly, that these photos of punks getting stopped by a policeman is no big deal. But Pete needs the money and he knows a great product is nothing without the great sales department to back it up. But you don't get the idea, Mr. Jameson. Those pics are dynamite. While Pete's selling, Betty walks up in a pink dress, her bob, flawless. Pete holding up her finger behind JJ, smiling, says, Think how badly makes Spider-Man look. He was beaten to some crooks by one lone officer. JJ, his right eyebrow arched as he thinks about Pete's words, tells the kid he's right. Betty, listening to Pete slander the man who saved her life twice, stares at the back of both guys in shock, thinking she's never heard Peter Parker knock Spider-Man. But she's never seen Pete at Midtown High, where he lambasts Spidey every chance he gets. This is just more of that. And he's managed to convince JJ, who claps him on his back in the next panel, saying it's a great thing that he's had another JJ brainstorm and another angle. He tells Pete he'll send the kid his check in the morning and claps him on the back again. Pete catches Betty eye and she is upset. Betty's standing, leaned against the filing cabinet with her hand on her waist, and if looks could kill, Peter would spontaneously combust. Pete asks why she's giving him a cold shoulder look. Pete, cold is an understatement. Betty pauses a moment, then steps towards Pete, and jabbing a finger in his face, snaps. You should know why, Peter. You've been selling too many pictures to Jay Jonah. You're beginning to sound like him now. He screams that he was just joking before pointing his own finger over Betty's shoulder, asking her what that is. On four, the guy from page one, Spidey Bunch, wearing a black suit and green tie, wheels his Tweedle machine and its podium-sized control into the room and gets right to his speech. Mr. Jameson, my name is Smythe. I'm an inventor. I've read your anti-Spider-Man editorials for months, so I know how you hate him. That's why I'm here. I have something that is guaranteed to defeat Spider-Man. Who let this guy up to the Daily Bugle? JJ's had like five villainous events jump off since Spidey hit the scene and people are still allowing strangers with fantastical ideas to enter the building. And it's looking like JJ's learned his lesson after Mysterio and the Scorpion. He calls Smythe a crackpot and turning his back on the inventor, covers his face with his hands, shouting, Ow! Ow! I'm not getting mixed up with any more nutty mad scientists. Every time I listen to one of you nitwits, I end up being a laughingstock. Called them nitwits when he took the word of one supervillain and he created a whole nother one. Just like Pete, Smythe knows he's got to sell and walking up behind the miserable magnate, begs JJ to let him demonstrate his machine's power. Meanwhile, Pete walks over to the Tweedle machine and unimpressed, hopes Smythe didn't bet his rent money on this machine beating him. I understand Pete's confidence, but it's like he's forgotten when he battled the living brain back in ASM number eight or two infinities here on me and my friend Pete. He and a living brain tore the holes of Midtown High apart, and Spidey barely beat that machine, so his hubris shouldn't be so strong. Back to. Pete can't hear me though, and if he could, I'm not sure he would care regardless. He's thinking, Say, this would be a great chance to get even with Jonah for all the trouble he's caused me in the past. I might even make some more dough selling photos of the Spider-Man, air quotes, 
Finally, the Donuts and Dimes accounts are about to be opened again, and Pete wants to make a withdrawal and a deposit at the same damn time. Smythe grabs JJ by the shoulder, saying he only needs a moment to show what the machine can do. JJ refuses. He tells the man to get out again. But Pete, walking over, drapes an arm around the miserable magnate and starts working towards that cash deposit. He probably is a phony JJ, but he can't do any harm to watch him demonstrate. Pete continues into the next panel, saying there's a real chance this quack job Smythe might be onto something, and if not, what has JJ got to lose? Betty is pissed. She shouts for Pete to keep quiet, wondering what's gotten into the Goldenrod kid. But Pete's not hearing her at all. He is on a roll. After all, it has to take something special to be able to fight Spider-Man. Maybe that nutty-looking robot is just what the doctor orders. Betty, trying to grab Pete by the blazer, asks if he wants Spidey defeated. Pete brushes her off of him with his right arm, puts his left hand on JJ's right shoulder, tells Betty to ixnay on the ID spay, and to JJ says that the robot can beat the webhead, JJ will get all the credit. And if it doesn't, Nobody's gonna know because JJ didn't make a whole scene of things. Betty tries to grab Pete away from the miserable magnate by the right shoulder. But you know the kid's like walking iron, and while Betty strains, with no struggle, Pete continues telling Jonah that he's much smarter than Spider-Man could ever hope to be, and everyone came from dumb luck. That sooner or later, JJ's bound to win. If all of this ego stroking didn't hammer the message home already, Pete finishes with, After all, look how successful you are. You're a born winner, JJ. If I didn't know any better, I'd think Pete was courting violence. I'd say be careful what you wish for, because you just might get it. And right now, JJ grabbing his lapels, looks up towards the ceiling, saying he may have been too hasty. On five, JJ pulls a cigar from his mouth, turns to Smythe and the machine, saying, Very well, Smythe. Let's see your demonstration. Smythe, smiling, tells JJ he won't be disappointed, while Betty, scowling, pinches Pete repeatedly on the arm. Smythe pulls a crystal orb filled with a giant spider from who knows where. Probably borrowed it from the chameleon, saying he needs someone to hold the glass. JJ volunteers Pete, saying it was the kid's idea so he can hold the orb. But that ain't it. JJ funds experiments. He doesn't take part in them, right? He'll make a scorpion. He won't be a scorpion. Pete's bravado and smack talk disappear as he stands with the glass orb raised. Is he sweating? Flop sweating. While Smythe walks behind the podium controls of the Tweedle machine. He tells Pete not to worry because he won't be hurt. All Smythe wants to do is prove that Tweedle can sense a spider's presence anywhere. Pete is starting to wonder if this guy isn't a crackpot. He can't back out now because Smythe's already turned the machine on, and Tweedle locked onto the presence of the 510 hero with the strength of a thousand spiders, and in the time it takes for our eyes to shift from the gutter, that's the space between panels, Pete is wrapped up by at least 10 steel coils from head to toe. None of them touch the glass orb with the spider in it at all. Pete's thinking, now I'm in for it. The coils were attracted to my own, much greater spider power. Smythe, watching his machine wrap up a minor and dangerous steel rope, shouts, It should have grabbed the spider rather than Parker. But that isn't important. I can iron out a few little bugs like that. But you can see how it automatically ensnares anything related to a spider. No use struggling, Parker. You cannot break that coiled steel. Pete's not smiling now. Even struggling with his spider strength, the steel coils won't give an inch. JJ, liking what he sees, says, Mmm. Not bad, not bad. He and Smythe turn to speak with each other in the background of the next panel. Smythe says the Tweedle machine will quote, locate Spider-Man through its hypersensitive Geiger-type apparatus. Translation, comic books. JJ says it sounds foolproof, while in the foreground, Pete's in distress and Betty doesn't care at all. As Pete struggles, futilely, Betty shouts, you finally got what you deserve, Mr. Parker. I hope you never break loose. She is livid with the Goldenrod Kid. Meanwhile, JJ and Smythe keep talking, still ignoring Pete. 
JJ's gotten comfortable. He's taking a seat on one of the bullpen desks. As Smythe, hand in pocket, tells JJ he can control the machine himself from the simple pedestal he pushed into the building. Simple. That thing looks like it weighs 200 pounds, and I'm sure the Con Edison bill for 39th and 2nd is going to be through the roof this month. That thing looks like it just devours electricity. While they're gabbing it up, Pete's had enough. Hey, how about getting me out of here? Smythe pokes out a button on the back of the Tweedle to open page 6, and the coils pull away from Pete right away. JJ is sold. He says he'll pay whatever Smythe wants for the robot. That this is what he needs to take care of Spidey. Smythe and JJ walk off into the background, Smythe saying he only wants to rent out the Tweedle, not sell it. JJ throws his arm over Smythe's shoulders and says, fine, let's talk in my office. Busy men don't talk money in the bullpen. In the foreground, Pete massages his arms while Betty folds her own and gives Pete an earful. Well, Mr. Parker, I hope you're quite satisfied with yourself. In pink from head to toe, Betty goes panther in the next panel. Her right hand on her hip, she puts a finger in Pete's face, continuing. You're even worse than Mr. Jameson. At least he thinks he has a reason to hate Spider-Man, but you haven't. But now after spending five panels hemmed up, Pete's got a whole different idea about what fun with the Tweedle machine will be. Betty gets real in the next panel, shaming Pete flat out. Fun? Fun to help get Spider-Man captured? And after the way he saved your Aunt May from Dr. Octopus? That was ASM Annual Number 1, or... There ain't no punchlines to fist flying. Two. Hero, me and my friend Pete. When Spidey risked life and limb to save not only Aunt May, but Betty Brand as well from the Sinister Six. Betty wants Pete to put respect on Spidey's name. Betty's anger and Pete's lowered head and sad expression make this the, the panel, panel of the week. Ditko is working here. Betty's done with Pete. She says she could live to be 100 and not understand him before telling him to run along and join his leader, Jonah Jameson. Pete walks through the bullpen, running his hand through his hair, his other hand in his pocket, and now he's feeling the shame. Kudos to Betty. Pete's thinking, Boing! Then I found myself up this time. I thought it would be a big gag, but that robot really is dangerous. And Betty's mad at me now, and here I go again. Yeesh! My luck sure runs the gamut from bad to hopeless. He's blaming this on bad luck, but Pete's made his own luck. I get it though. You gotta make the donuts and you can't do that on dimes. Anytime Spidey gets into beef, there's a chance for Pete to get paid. And May's cookie jar money is running short. So I understand. Later at the steps of Midtown High School. Flash fashion on trash. Thompson is outside of Midtown High in a green turtleneck and brown slacks with the Foolsville faithful. We've got Connie with the good hair and a blue blouse and skirt. Johnny C lookalike in a yellow blazer and SJB bow tie. A redhead in a yellow blouse, skirt, and bow tie. Bow tie Charlie in a maroon sweater and SJB's bow tie. And a couple of other people milling about. And you know if Flash is in his green turtleneck, he's lying like a... <clears throat> Fine, if Flash didn't chase JJ up the street, JJ wouldn't have burst through the door of Mysterio's full P-Psychiatrist office at the perfect moment to derail the illusionist plan to discover Spidey's identity. So he's telling the truth when he says... Did I tell you chicks how I helped old Spidey to get the last laugh on that phony P-Psychiatrist a few weeks ago? The redhead says you told us a dozen times, but tell us again. Twelve times Flash has told this war story. And I gotta admit, if I were ever in a position to help Spidey save the day, or to save Spidey's day, I wouldn't shut up about it either. Either way, Bowtie Charlie points in our direction shouting, Hey Flash, look who's coming. It's Puny Parker with your gal friend Liz running after him. And Bowtie Charlie's got a giant smile on his face, starting trouble. Connie, scowling, probably trying to climb the Midtown High social ladder by getting closer to Flash, says she told him Liz and Pete had a date last night. Flash, his left fist clenched, tells everybody to relax, calm down. He knows just how to handle this little thing. While Liz races up behind Pete in an orange skirt with brown and burgundy pinstripe sleeves, shouting, Petey! 
Oh, Petey, wait for me. Does the brand X kid snap? No. He waits for Pete and Liz to approach the group to open page seven and claps Pete on both shoulders, smiling. Hi, Liz. Well, hello, Pete, old pal. How's it going, fella? How's a boy? Pete's not buying it, of course. He asks Flash what he's plotting. Liz is suspicious, too. She says if Flash is trying to get Petey to fight, she's never going to speak to the Brand X kid ever again. Flash says a fight? Perish forbid that he just wants to talk to the Goldenrod kid. That's all. Liz says, all right, then I'll leave you boys alone and walks off. Again, trusting that Flash is not going to be a bully when all he does in the presence of Peter Parker is bully him. Flash drops a smile as soon as Liz is gone and bowls a ham-sized fist, pulling Pete close to him with his left arm. See you later, Petey, you creep. I warned you what would happen if you tried to two-time me with my girl. I'll be waiting for you after school today, and you better be there. Flash wants to smoke, and after school, he's going to get some. Pete tries to make the kids see sense, saying he's got better things to do than knock Flash out again. But Flash ain't trying to hear it. He says Pete heard him that Pete better be there after school, and that Pete doesn't need to worry, because it'll be over so fast, he'll hardly even feel it. The next panel, we're inside a classroom, and Pete's all thumbs today. His suit jacket off, he's dropped his books, while Bowtie Charlie tells a friend that Parker sure is jumpy today. And his friend says you'd be jumpy too if Flash Thompson wanted to pound on you. We know this is a fact. If you recall, in ASM number 18, The End of Spider-Man, or The Triumphant's Trumpets, here on me and my friend Pete, Flash thought Bowtie Charlie was talking smack about Spidey being a coward and threatened to pound on him. Bowtie Charlie nearly broke into tears convincing Flash he didn't badmouth the webhead, scared of Flash's right cross, so I get it, but that's not Pete. Back to Pete's worried about the Tweedle machine running down on him, not Flash, a chin to the ceiling when Pete gets to dealing, Thompson. In the next panel, Pete and Liz are side by side staring out of the window of Midtown High. Liz asks Pete why he keeps staring out of the window that way. Pete replies, what other way is there, Liz? Quipping. But he's thinking, it's sure to come after me as soon as Smythe sees that it's in perfect working condition. And at that very moment, Smythe is tinkering with his robot and telling JJ that it's working as smooth as silk, and Spidey will be the miserable magnate's captive by nightfall. JJ, leaning on a control panel, replies, You better be right, Smythe, if you want that bonus I promised you. The repair's all done. Smythe sets the machine to automatic, saying all they have to do now is wait for the Tweedle machine to pick up Spidey's Kavorka. Betty watches the two men plotting, thinking that if Spidey falls into this trap, it'll be all Peter's fault. In the final panel, Smythe turns the machine back on and it immediately begins firing its Geiger-like signal. Smythe says they're in luck. The machine's grabbed Spidey's scent already. And now, Mr. Jameson, this is where you come in. Are you ready? We turn the page and we're on... The Infinity, the Infinity, Infinity, Infinity Page! Page 8. Just in time to witness Smythe set JJ up at the control panel while he activates the monitor on the Tweedle machine. JJ's face fills the screen as he watches from the monitor in the background, screaming, This is great! I can see right out through the robot's face! He takes control over the machine and has it roll through the Daily Bugle bullpen as his employees look on. One of them breaking into a run away from the machine screams for JJ to test it out. Make it move! Now try to voice! And JJ, his face sneering through the monitor, is still a busy man. He rolls the Tweedle machine forward, stopping next to Betty Brent, who glares at the automaton, unimpressed, and shouts to the office, What's everyone staring at? Get back to work! All of you! JJ's a busy man, and he's not going to let his team be anything less than he is. That's way past busy enough. The robot hits the street with JJ and Smythe looking on, and JJ's tickled as pink as Betty's dress. That was delightful! I scared them out of a year's growth! Say, look, where's the robot going? Smythe says it's on the trail of the spider. The game is afoot. And the people on the street are thunderstruck, 
A black guy and two white guys stop what they're doing to stare at the steel-clad machine. Meanwhile... Back at Midtown High, Flash jabs a finger into Pete's shoulder as the last bell rings. He calls Pete useless and hits him with that age-old threat. I'll be waiting for you outside. Pete, on his bone crusher, translation, never scared, replies, Fine, fine. And if you're real nice about it, maybe I'll let you carry my books home. Like I'm about to make you my bitra. But no sooner does Flash leave when... He glances out the window and sees to his dismay that the Tweedle machine has already traversed the five blocks from Midtown Manhattan to Midtown High in Forest Hills, Queens. There's a guy on the street in a tan suit who freezes on the spot, staring at the rolling monstrosity as Pete starts sweating immediately. The robot! It's coming! It's Wayne! It must have sensed me here! Pete's not taking any chances. He grabs his suit jacket and bolts towards the side exit out of the school thinking he has to get a safe distance away from the school and change into Spidey before the machine catches up. Meanwhile, Liz has gotten wind of Flash's plans, and like the wind, she darts towards Flash in the Foolsville Faithful, her blonde hair and skirt whipping behind her, screaming, Flash Thompson, what's this I hear about you waiting to have a fight with Petey Parker? Flash thinks, oh no, not Liz, not now. The facial expressions in this issue are top notch. Flash, his lips curled down like he's ashamed of himself, gives Liz the rules of his life. He says this situation with Parker is between them two, no one else. Liz says you're fighting over me, so it's my business too. While they're bickering, one of the Foolsville faithful screams, Flash, Parker's running away, pointing across the courtyard. And the Brandex kid springs into action. He, Bowtie Charlie, a kid with red hair in an SJB suit, a Sandy Brown in an orange cardigan, and a strawberry blonde break into a sprint in the direction of Pete. Flash is pissed, his left hand raised in a fist. He screams that he's going to teach Parker a lesson about trying to dodge him. But Flash is the only one angry. Every other kid with him is smiling from ear to ear. The redhead screams, yippee! This is Lord of the Flies Reborn and Pete just found himself as Ralph on the beach. Page nine opens and we find Pete racing up the block. He's pulled his blazer and red tie from his neck, holding one in each hand, his hair tousled. He glances over his shoulder at Flash who screams at him to stop being a chicken, stand and fight. But Pete's not going to do that. First, he'd clobber him if he did. And second, he's thinking, it's Flash and his stooges. I think I can use them this time. The best part of this panel, if this is the Lord of the Flies we're born, there's a guy in a green suit and brown fedora playing the British officer from the end of the book. He's watching the chase, smiling with his hands in his pockets. Where's the good Samaritans when you need them? In the next panel, the camera shifts back to the Tweedle machine, speeding up the street behind Flash, his gang, and Liz Allen, as a white guy in a maroon suit and orange fedora leaps to the side so the machine can lumber past. Pete thinks from off panel, all I have to do is keep them between me and the robot. As JJ shouts, Kids, up ahead, they're blocking my view. Through the monitor, the man in maroon asks a brown guy in an SJB suit and hat, what in the name of creation do you call that? And the brown guy asks if this is some kind of advertisement and if the machine is giving away free samples. JJ ignores them both. Shouting at Flash's gang, he calls them brats and orders them to move out of the way. The Foolsville faithful look back, spot the death machine, and panic sets in immediately. The redhead screaming that JJ has become a monster. We get a two-thirds panel and everyone on the street is booking it. The three men wondering what the machine is stage right, following the Tweedle machine as JJ shouts through its monitor that Spider-Man has to be somewhere ahead of him. Flashing his gang in front of the machine, Flash hearing that Spidey somewhere around throws his arms wide screaming, Spider-Man, wow, we've got to keep running. I don't want to miss this. And Pete in the lead wondering how he can slip away from the guys tailing him, but tells himself he'll find a way. And then suddenly, Rounding a corner. Cosmic timing gives Pete his opening. He turns a corner, takes a small hop to gain huh. momentum. 
then leaps a story straight up and grabs a flagpole, swinging himself onto a nearby roof. No problem. In the final panel, Flash, as dense as they come, turns the opposite direction. Despite being five feet behind Pete, he wonders where the goldenrod kid disappeared to. Dunce! The Tweedle machine doesn't have this problem. It's normally stubby legs extended to stilts. It's arms too, and it begins scaling the sheer wall of the building Pete's just leapt onto. Payson opens a Spidey suited and, well, he's almost suited, but his gloves aren't on. Neither is his right boot, and we know now Spidey gets in gear with no socks. Dicko out here drawing feet to remind all these artists who he is. The Great One. Anyway, Spidey's not thinking about his feet. At least not specifically, he's wondering how the Tweedle machine got to the roof so fast. But Smythe clearly has Stiltman technology. Fun fact, Stiltman is a villain whose superpower is the ability to stretch his arms and legs, and he debuted over in Daredevil number 8, also in June of 1965. So now I'm wondering if Smythe made that villain's gear. Update, he didn't. Back to. Spidey leaps down onto a nearby rooftop, gets his boots and gloves on, and keeps moving. While JJ and Smythe look on from their side of the monitor. JJ pounding on the control panel, screaming with glee. You were right, Smythe. Your robot works. It found that roof-crawling menace as easy as pie. Smythe replies that he's equipped the machine with every type of weapon he could think of, so the Tweedle will definitely defeat Spider-Man. And JJ is talking his smack. Recognize me, Spider-Man? It's your old pal, J. Jonah. I finally found a way to clip your wings forever. Bad smack talk. Spidey's great because he's not one of those cliched flying villains. But Spidey's not thinking about that at all. He's marveling at the FaceTime capabilities of JJ's robot. He can even talk through that thing. The future, thy name is JJ. While in the street below. Flash and his gang are in the background wondering where Pete and the robot got off to, with Flash saying maybe Pete found Spider-Man and the robot. Liz, her right hand to her face, looks over her shoulder, hand to chin, thinking she hopes that's not the case. Flash looks up in the next panel, spots the King of Swing, and shouts, Look, there he is! And we got action. As Spidey leaps above the group's heads, both arms out in front of him, the huh. tentacles of the Tweedle machine extending from the roof to grab him up. A moment later, the entire machine, its legs extending to the ground, burst onto the scene. Flash, fashion on trash, never scared when the pressure's on, grabs Liz and pulls her out of the way as the machine's legs hit the ground and the Foolsville faithful scatter. Jameson shouting that Spider-Man can't escape because he's able to follow him wherever he goes. On 11, the Brandex kid reconnects with his gang and they upstairs help him, are asking Flash what to do next about Parker. But Flash says, screw Parker. It's time for him to help Spidey like he did last time. But if you recall, last time, the spider told Flash to stay out of his way and called him a bird brain. I mean, Flash enjoyed the insult, but it doesn't change the fact. Back to Liz, listening in from behind, thinks this is good because now Petey can get away. Flash, 100% man of action right now, races up the street telling his crew to follow him while he follows the robot. And Liz isn't taking any chances. She's a step behind Flash, sprinting in a gorgeous panel, thinking, perhaps if I tag along with him, he'll stop being so jealous of poor Petey. Imagine thinking that she has to give a guy she doesn't want more time so he'll get over her not wanting to give him any time. The conditioning we put girls through as a society is madness. Meanwhile, Spidey's done running. This is where I'll make my stand, right in the middle of the street. If I beat Jameson now, everybody will know about it. He'll never live it down. He's going mano a mano as crowds of people watch from corners on the sidewalk. The king of swing from Forest Hills, Queens, holding court in the street. 
and Spidey makes his move. He sprays a shot of liquid webbing at JJ's face in the Tweedle machine from his right shooter, screaming, First, I'll give you a taste of my liquid webbing! But Smythe wasn't kidding when he said he equipped this machine for battle, because the steel skin of the Metal Beast has been specially prepared with a slick oil, preventing Spidey's webbing from sticking to the machine. So Spidey changes tactics, thinking the best move is to spray his sheer net webbing over the machine and then pull it off of its feet. But the Tweedle machine is prepared for this move as well. It throws a tentacle over its monitor, preventing Spidey's net from spreading. As soon as Spidey's done spraying his web line, the machine drops its arm and the webbing along with it. Spidey, his hands still raised, thinking, It's went off again! It won't stick to any part of him! Now what do I do? As the crowd stares on in the background, unimpressed. Now it's JJ's turn. He shoots 20 steel coils at Spidey, but just because our hero's webbing doesn't work on the machine doesn't mean Spidey's agility is broken. Still on best ever, he leaps up and twists in the air, dodging all of the tentacles easily, thinking that was close. And, oh, Jonah must be gloating to beat the band right now. In the final panel, the Tweedle machine swings all its arms skyward towards Spidey, who's still flying over its head, and Spidey's thinking that the arms follow him automatically. JJ, shifting the monitor to keep his eyes on the webhead, grinning so hard his cheeks may split, shouts, Dodge all you want to! You can't avoid me forever! Spidey lands on the street on 12 on the other side of the Tweedle machine as its coils follow him, and we see now that Smythe has covered all bases. The base of the machine doesn't even move. The head just pivots 180 degrees to look over its own shoulders, and the crowd, as entitled as it comes, wants action. Not, you know, Spidey saving his own life or anything. A black-haired white guy shouts, Hey, Big Shot! What gives? You're running the wrong way! But Spidey's running towards survival and notes the hypocritical nature of the men who've never been in the arena. He leaps over the heads of the huh. crowd, the coils still chasing, and lands on a nearby sheer wall thinking, My enduring problem! They can't wait to turn against me at the first opportunity! Flash and Liz beneath him and the crowd stare up. Flash upset that they're going to lose Spidey if Spidey hits that roof. At the same time, JJ's tie rating through the screen of the Tweedle machine. Its antenna glowing, JJ shouts, Going for a little climb, Spider-Man? That won't help you. I'm coming right after you. You're not getting away from me. And the camera shifts back to the Daily Bugle offices where JJ and Smythe are still cheesing. Your cheek's not tired? JJ tells Smythe that he's a genius, that he's never had a better time in his life. Betty walks up, her fists clenched, and she's pissed. She's thinking, this is terrible. I've got to help poor Spider-Man somehow. I owe him that much. The damsel, never in distress in the hot pink dress, has one goal. Save Spidey. Pete doesn't know how lucky he is. Betty stops in front of the machine and thinking there's only one thing to do, gets busy. She reaches for the control saying, careful Mr. Jameson, that dial is coming loose. Here, let me tighten it for you. But she didn't move fast enough. JJ grabs her forearm before she touches the podium telling her he'd lose control and shouts at her to stay back. Betty thinks drats, too slow, but she's not done yet. She says she's got to think of something else. Betty's thinking like ground control. Back on the scene, we get a top-down view of Spidey, scaling a sheer wall with the Tweedle machine on his tail. JJ shouting that Spidey should give up and save himself some trouble. Spidey thinking, I don't know which is worse, that robot's coils or Jameson's raspy, gloating voice. In the final panel, Spidey reaches the top of the ledge and keeps running. Tweedle right behind him, JJ gloating through the screen. He tells Spidey that he looks tired, while JJ himself is fresh as ever. Spidey replies, Well, bully for you, big mouth. Like, shut up, homie, I'm trying to survive here. The camera shifts back to the bugle again. There are just camera cuts all over the place. JJ shouts, Now I know you're tired. Even your corny wisecracks are sounding weaker than ever. Betty, watching with arms folded, thinks JJ's right, and she's got to think of something. She gets an idea as JJ shouts that he wishes Spidey had infinite stamina. And her eyes fixed on the socket, she makes her move. 
She grabs a handful of papers from who knows where and pretending to stumble, drops the papers near the outlet. She shouts, oops, how clumsy of me. But she is smiling the whole time. When I say she is cheesing, I mean it. Bending down to pick up her papers, she inches towards the socket thinking that she feels like the heroine in an adventure thriller and it's really exciting. Spidey is on the move. With the first spider slayer on his tail and no hope to be seen, his survival rests in the hands of the damsel never in distress in the hot pink dress. You've seen her stand up to Blackie Gaxton. You've seen her dodge the menacing arms of the one-man hands team at Coney Island. Now, in her most thrilling role ever, Elizabeth Betty Brant tries to shut down JJ's latest plot at destroying the amazing Spider-Man. She is Secretary Saboteur. Back to... Just as Betty's reaching for the plug, Jameson glances over from the console, his hands on his hips. He shouts, Miss Brant, what in thunder are you doing? Get away from there! Betty thinks, oh no, that if this were just a story, she'd have made it. Jameson helps Betty from the floor in the gutter between panels and pushes her out of his office in the next, shouting, How do you expect me to concentrate with you getting underfoot all the time? Get out! Take the rest of the day off! Without pay, of course! But Betty will not be deterred. She thinks this is Pete's fault, and Spidey saved his aunt and gets the kid paid with his pictures as well. So Pete owes the man his help. Betty's trying to pay back the webhead for his bravery, and she's going to find a way to get Pete to do it. She races to her desk, grabs her phone, and calls the Parker home, but the line's busy. She hangs up and begins pacing. Spider-Man has helped Peter many times in the past. Now it's his turn to repay the favors. She calls the Parker home again, but the line's still busy. She paces some more. I never even liked Spider-Man or any silly costumed adventurer, but I can't help feeling sorry for him. She picks up her phone again, continuing her monologue. After all, it isn't fair for a man to have to fight a tireless robot. If only Peter can convince Jameson to... Trap! Still busy! Betty then assumes that May is on the phone and shouts that women can talk for hours. Yikes, Stan. Betty grabs her clutch bag, grabs her matching pink blazer, and shouts that she's going over to the Parker home right now. And on a crowded street corner. On 14, we're back with Flash and the Foolsville Faithful. And they're saying since they can't find Spider-Man, they need to go back on the hunt for Peter Parker. But Liz has heard enough. She tells Flash he better not dare do that. Bowtie Charlie says bump that noise. Parker probably lit out for home and Flash can find him there. Flash agrees saying that's as good a place as any to start looking. Liz tries to get Flash to back off. She says she's ashamed of him and if he hurts Petey, she'll never speak to Flash again. Flash says, I'm not going over there to pound on him. I'm going over there to get him to admit that he ran away because he's a chicken. Liz says, no, Pete's just too smart to waste his time fighting. But they're both half right and all wrong. Pete's got a big brain, but he lives his life by the tenements of the Golden Liability playbook. Big brains, big fists. Swinging them if he has to. Swinging them because he's got them. Back to. Flash turns his back on Liz thinking, the more she defends him, the more I hate him. Anger issues, thy name is Thompson. Meanwhile, the young stalwart who seems to be on everyone's lips is having troubles enough among the rooftops. Spidey's just left a 20-foot distance between rooftops as the tweet huh. machine extends its legs, following with no problem. Jameson screams, I can play tag as long as you can! As Spidey thinks, I must have been out of my mind! This is all my own fault! I talked Jameson into using that robot! Spidey leaps onto a higher ledge, bracing on his right fingertips, keeping his body curled and small. Agility on, best ever. And if he had an extra leg right now, he'd be kicking himself with it. I thought this would be a picnic. I thought I could make a fool of Jonah in front of everyone. Don't court violence. The next panel, we see Spidey's raced along the edge of the building's ledge and it's stage left with his back arch, avoiding the coils racing towards him from stage right. 
Spidey thinks that every time he slows down, the steel coils get way too close for comfort. As JJ screams from off panel that he wants Spidey to keep running because he wants the delightful episode to last. In the final panel on page, with the camera pulled in tight on our hero, the Tweedle machine over his shoulder, JJ is beaming and Spidey knows he needs to rest for a second but doesn't know how he's going to get that moment. JJ starts screaming. How do you like being on the run, you costume freak? How does it feel to be up against your superior? Namely, J. Jonah Jameson. Not a humble bone in all of JJ's body. But once again, our scene briefly changes as we find Betty Brand arriving at the home of Peter Parker. Betty hops out of a yellow taxi cab, wondering why there's a group forming outside of the Parker home. She walks up and runs smack dab into her romantic rival, Liz Allen, who's heading towards Pete's door with the Brand X kid, Flash Thompson, a step behind her. Liz tells Flash to stay where he is while she goes in. She thinks if Pete is there, she'll warn the Goldenrod kid not to come out until the Brandex kid is gone. Well, Betty is shocked to see Liz here thinking, so, so Peter, Peter still, still sees, sees her. her. They go to the same school, Betty. Until he graduates, they have no choice but to see each other. The two young ladies walk side by side, sizing each other up the whole time. There were balloons dripping icicles. Betty says, well, fancy meeting you here, Miss Allen. Do you always travel in a pack like that? Liz replies, why no, Miss Brandt? But sometimes it's hard to get rid of all of my admirers, although I'm sure you don't have that problem. They are shady right now. They reach the front door at the same time, and I assume Betty knocks. May opens it wearing a friendly smile and a green sweater. She spots the two young ladies, greets them warmly, and says her day has been filled with surprises. Betty, Liz bumping shoulders with her, jockeying for position to get into the house, wonders what May means by her comment. Liz doesn't. She asks if Peter is in. Liz gets right to it. May says no, but she expects him to be in shortly and invites both girls in to wait. Betty says she'll stay. Liz says she will too. May says, cool. I'd like you to meet another charming young lady. She's the niece of Mrs. Watson, my next door neighbor. Liz thinks, another girl? Betty thinks, more competition? And I think Pete's Kavorka is spiraling out of control in the best way. But you know that Parker luck, how I always say Pete doesn't have it? That he only has great skill and a sense of responsibility? That's because I'm convinced that all the cosmic luck Peter Benjamin Parker has ever had in his life has been tied up into his stars, planets, and every atom in the universe aligning and blessing him with the presence of the greatest woman in comic book lore. For the first time, in a lemon yellow dress, since at the waist, a lime green silk scarf wrapping her hair, her nails flawless, and her face blocked by a red dahlia flower in bloom, fitting sitting with her legs crossed on the couch in the den is the one and only in all the comic book universe. My people, we've got Mary, Jane, Watson. May introduces her to Betty and Liz saying Mary Jane just came to visit her nephew, MJ. Waving a hand replies in a sing-song voice, Hello, girls! Betty and Liz are in shock and speechless and flabbergasted and floored, standing with their mouths open. Betty thinks Mary Jane looks like a silver screen starlet, and Liz can't believe what she's seeing. He's been hiding, He's been hiding her from us? Our shy, bashful, studious Peter? Peter? It's to note, I love Mary Jane for all the reasons we'll dive into in the future stories, but to act like she isn't a great beauty, that's just ridiculous. May knows it, Betty and Liz know it, and my first crush of anyone ever was none other than the one and only Mary Jane. And I can admit that you don't have to objectify to admit looks matter to you, so believe me when I say, I know it, back to 
May ask Betty and Liz if they want T to open 16, but both girls, their egos supremely deflated, say they have to get going. Flash meets Liz outside asking if Pete was home, and Liz replies icily, saying she doesn't know where he is, then says goodbye to Betty Brant. Betty says the same. Isaac was dripping from her words as well. Flash tells Liz not to go. He asks if she doesn't want to see her bookworm boyfriend eat crow. And, of course, Liz doesn't. She's too busy eating humble pie right now. She storms off stage right. Betty exits walking towards us with her head down. And the Foolsville faithful say they have to hit the old dusty trail because it's getting late. Flash screams for them to wait, but as they walk off, he folds his arms, talking to himself. Let him go. That milksot has to come back sometime, and I'm staying till he does. Although it would be more fun to prove how yellow he is with the other guys watching. Everything for ego, thy name is Flash Thompson. And so, we again take our leave of the Thompson family's pride and joy as we return once more to our web-spinning wonder. Spidey's on another ledge, but he's finally managed to put some space between himself and the Tweedle machine. He leans against a chimney stack, wiping the sweat pooling on his forehead. At least it'll give me time to slow down and rest for a few seconds. Phew! Oh, spider strength? Don't fail me now! But that space between closes quick, and Tweedle's back on him, cornering Spidey by the chimney stack. Well, hello there! You wouldn't be trying to hide from fun-loving Jonah, would you? Quipping. And Spidey thinks J.J. the comedian? Oh, bruh! His back against the wall, Spidey goes to play four of the Golden Liability playbook. Back against the wall, Spidey's gonna leap. And he does! Off the edge, fearlessly as J.J. Huh. sings. He floats through the air with the greatest of ease. Spidey is not amused. Yeesh. I wonder if I sounded that corny when the shoe was on the other foot. You didn't, Spidey. You didn't. He lands on a rooftop in the shadow of a water tower to open 17. The Tweedle machine lands across from him, and I imagine it's high noon at dusk. Spidey thinks, Well, I've had it. If I run any longer, I'll tire myself out. So much that I won't be able to fight. I just gotta stop and make a stand now, no matter what. Translation? It's time for the showdown. JJ says Spider-Man's finally realizing he can't escape. He activates a button, the steel coils shoot out from the machine towards our hero, and JJ screams. If only I could bottle up this glorious moment and take out the cork and relive it whenever I want to. While Spidey thinks the coils are shooting out faster than expected. And in less than a second, he is completely wrapped up in the coils again. Spidey hasn't thrown one punch at this thing. He hasn't been able to get close enough because of these rapid-firing steel coils. But Spidey's not going to give up without a fight, especially because it's JJ. Oh no! It happened too quickly! I'm caught, but I can't be! He can't win too easily! He mustn't! As Spidey struggles, JJ the Triumphant has returned. Look at you, the amazing Spider-Man, trapped by ordinary J. Jonah Jameson, average American business tycoon. Spidey wants JJ to know in no uncertain terms that J.J. isn't tough because he needed a robot to do it. J.J. says that's a minor detail, that he had to give Peter Parker a reward for convincing him to use this device. And this seems like a little bit of insult to injury. I'm sure at this point, J.J. assumes Pete and Spidey have some kind of working relationship. That explains why Pete's always in the right place, right time for those Spidey photos. So J.J. wants Spidey to know that his own man's is the reason that J.J.'s got him in his vulnerable position. J.J. says he'll be extra generous with the kid. He'll even let him call him Jonah if he wishes. Spidey thinks, fighting to keep the coils from locking him in place, I'd like to reward Peter Parker also, with a brick. How could I have been such a lunkhead? I mean, all may only have like $10 in that cookie jar, Spidey, so you trying to get after it, I understand. And you were a bit arrogant, but I get it. 25 issues in a row, you've been swinging those two fists and thwip thwip into your heart's content. I'd say be humble, but Mary Jane is sitting in your living room. You are all wins. You were supposed to be chastising him. 
The kid's wrapped in coils, GC. He's got his own problems right now. Back to. In the final panel, JJ gets poetic. And now you, you who have trapped so many in that cowardly web of yours. You're trapped yourself. Today, I feel like a man of destiny. And Spidey, having spoken only one sentence in four pages, is still silent. But in his mind, he's pep talking hard. Come on, Spidey, snap out of it. You're still alive. There's still hope. Think of something. Think. As long as I draw breath, there's hope. That is the Spidey mantra. But nothing really changes to open page 18. Spidey goes from struggling upright to struggling on one leg. And JJ keeps talking his smack. When the news of my brilliant triumph is made public, I'll probably be asked to join the Avengers. But I'll prove my modesty by declining. Stand still when I'm talking to you. You're distracting me. Man said they're going to ask him to join Earth's Mightiest Heroes. As if. The red tape on honoring a fallen hero takes three pages of comic. Letting a person who's only renting a Mark I Spider Slayer would probably take a 12-issue story arc with the company-wide crossover. Translation? Never gonna happen. Although now, I kinda want that story. Back to. Spidey thinks the more he struggles, the tighter the coils wrap around him. If only I could burn my way out. Rests. You never can find a human torch when you need one. Now he wants a Johnny Lowell, huh? They had a chance to be friends, they blew it. JJ pulls Spidey right up against the monitor, screaming. Say it, Spider-Man. Say it. Let me hear you say you surrender. Sidebar. I just finished reading Spider-Man number 798, and the villain in that one tried to get Spidey to surrender too. Spoiler alert. Didn't happen. Back to. The camera shifts back to JJ's office where he has a triumphant fist clenched. Smythe behind him, his hand clapped on a miserable magnate's shoulder. JJ says Spidey's trapped. What do they do next? Smythe pulls an 80 cell phone sized remote control from who knows where. How many remote controls does this thing have? Smythe says, well, if the robot tries to bring him back here, the coils may loosen during the trip and he might escape. So we'll go to him instead. We'll locate him with this portable finder. And Jameson really thinks he's a comedian in this one. The normally well-spoken magnate says, don't go away, we'll be right there. <laughs> I mean, he had to laugh like that. It says chortle in the box, so I assume that's how JJ laughs. <laughs> We're back with Spidey now, trapped face to face with the Tweedle machine, and he's thinking, Now's my chance! I can't escape through brute strength, but I've still got my brain! If I can detect the robot's power source by tapping on his chest plate, ah, that must be it! In the next panel, Spidey presses his fingers onto the chest plate of the machine, and using his Spidey ability to cling the surfaces, he tries to pull the chest plate open, thinking, I've gotta keep pulling! Harder! Harder! Does Spidey got the grip? Of course he's got the grip. And in the gutter between panels, he rips the chest plate from the robots. In the next panel, Spidey is staring at the circuit board of the Tweedle machine. He's thinking, Lucky I am the bookworm that Flash calls me. And racing to the scene, we find. We've got a purple cardigan, blue shirted, orange newsy cap cabbie staring into his rearview mirror. At Smythe and Jameson, who are staring at Smythe's 80 style cell phone receiver. Smythe says he can locate the robot anywhere with the remote he's using. JJ screams for the driver to go faster because he can't wait. And the driver? He's thinking, turn left, turn right, back, forward. They must be nuts. That's what he thinks. Nuts. Seconds later, the cabbie is certain his fares are demented as he sees. JJ and Smythe have exited the cab and ran to the nearby building, scaling a ladder leading to the roof of the building Spidey is trapped on. Smythe shouting that the robot can't be more than 30 feet away. JJ says that this day, the day he defeated Spider-Man, this is going to be the day the poets write ballads about. On 19, JJ and Smythe hit the roof and we find Spidey captured on his knees, his head thrown back, in the clutches of the Tweedle machine struggling valiantly. JJ the Triumphant is in his groove now. Pointing at Spidey, he shouts, In fact, 
The president will no doubt proclaim it as J. Jonah Jameson Day to honor the man who conquered that web-headed menace. This guy thinks he's going to have a Medal of Honor reception for taking out the world's greatest protector. He says Spidey looks like a rat in a trap, a sight he's going to treasure in his golden years. But no! When J.J. approaches Spidey and pulls his mask, he and Smythe are shocked to find that Spidey is headless. Smythe's thinking murder. He screams, Mr. Jameson, what have you done to his head? J.J. says that he didn't do anything, that Spidey doesn't got a head, but then he thinks he's talking nonsense. Well, on the narrow ledge just above Jameson and Smythe, we find... The clapback king from Forest Hills, Queens, Peter Parker, is not just a world-famous performer, a New York superhero, Midtown High's greatest student. Get to it. Pete is on this ledge in his SJB suit and goldenrod vest, and we're going to add puppeteer to his list of gifts because he is controlling his Spider-Man suit by two almost invisible singular strands of webbing. This makes sense for everything. It's worth losing my Spidey costume just to see that dumb look of bewilderment on Jonah's ugly pan. I ought to patent this idea and sell it. By using my web fluid, anyone can make lifelike instant puppets. Peter Geppetto. You can say it. Pulling the strings. Smythe, like most scientists and inventors, takes his loss on the chin. He says he thought the robot was unbeatable, but with an oh well, he says he's going back to the drawing board. But JJ? Tirating. He throws Spidey's empty mask onto the ground and lets loose. He made a fool of me again. I never should have listened to that idiot Parker. As for you, get out of here with that crazy robot before I wrap it around your scrawny neck. These two were best of friends for 15 pages, and now JJ's threatening to murder Smythe. So much for his Avengers membership card, and his Medal of Honor, and the Bard singing his praises for all time. All he gets to have now is rage, and we know JJ's got that in spades. Pete, grinning with an eye closed and his camera up to his face, Snaps pictures thinking he wants to have this moment of J.J. tirading to chuckle over in his old age. And back at Aunt May's house. MJ, her head turned, wrapped in a scarf so we can't see her face, waves goodbye to May as Flash stops in his tracks, thunderstruck as MJ passes, wondering who she is and thinking maybe she knows where Pete is. Before Flash can shoot a shot at MJ, a beat cop at SJ Blues approaches him. Say you. Flash, already turned to get at MJ, has to stop in his tracks as the officer gets at him. This is Tomas, of course. He and Joe blew up a warehouse down on Delancey a couple of weeks ago, so he's been placed on beat patrol. Again. Until he learned some act right. Flash thinks Pete made the call from inside his house to get rid of Flash. Or maybe it was any other house owner on the block who saw this kid pacing up and down outside of the Parker home. Flash, never seeing the forest for the trees, Thompson. Tomas says, If you got no business around here, son, you better move on. We've received a call about a suspicious-looking character hanging around. Finally. A short time later. Pete enters the Parker home where May is waiting in the den, standing, upset. Pete says hello and tells her that he's starved. Makes sense. He's been struggling against the robot all evening. But May says no food right now. I want to have a serious talk with you. Pete is shocked. He replies, wow, it must be serious. You're only trying to get me to eat more. What's wrong? May says you tell me. But Pete is clueless. May keeps going. She picks up a wrapped piece of fabric and says she went up to Pete's room to tidy up after Mary Jane went home. Pete's like, Mary Jane was here? May says that's not important. This is important. And holds up Pete's spare Spider-Man costume, saying she found it behind a bookcase. How strong is May that she's just moving bookcases out of the way? And you know Pete starts sweating immediately. He says he can explain. May says, I'm waiting. Go ahead. Pete thinks he can't lie, but he's going to do the next best thing. It's just a disguise, Aunt May. I was gonna use it to fool some people. Look, you can see it hasn't even been worn. It's brand new. I've never even had it on. 
The kid's half-truthing so hard, he has to roll his sleeves up in the gutters between panels, and now he's hit his rhythm. Gosh, I can't believe you suspect me of being Spider-Man. Look under my coat sleeves. No costume. Now, would he ever go out without it? May says, of course Pete's not Spider-Man, and calls him silly. But she still doesn't want Pete wearing that costume to parties because he could get into trouble. She says she's going to take it with her and ends it all by telling the Goldenrod kid that there's cake for him in the kitchen. Like, all right, the beef's done. Back to fattening you up, kid. Pete wipes the sweat off of his forehead, thinking he can never tell May he's Spidey, and goes ages again, saying the shock to his aunt could be fatal. In the final panel, Pete, his hands on his hips, in a purple negative space with a spotlight on him, the perfect image to end season one, thinks that he's in the clear again, but now he has no costume. What if I have to become Spidey again soon? Oh well, I'll worry about that when the time comes. And beneath him, we get a caption box. And, unless we miss our guess, that time is coming sooner than Peter thinks. But you'll learn about it for yourself when you read our sensational next issue. Don't miss it. It's your kind of yarn. And we're out. Ditko was working hard in this issue. In an issue with the villain being cold still, the facial expressions were emotive and expressive, even more than usual. And that's saying a lot for the amazing Steve Ditko. We got a foot in this issue. We got JJ School in this issue. We got a Lord of the Flies reference. To be fair, that was all me reaching because of the state of the real world right now, probably. But the fact remains, and more than anything else, we have the first appearance of the incomparable Mary Jane Watson. That's the main season this week! And that's true! That's the main season! But there is one more bonus episode in season one this week here on Me and My Friend Pete, available for your listening pleasure in a couple of days. If you support this show on Patreon.com slash HSPP, patrons get a bonus show every week where I run through comic books from all over the multiversal comics, past and present, from Marvel to DC to all points in between. This week, we're running through Mark Spector, Moon Knight, number 40, and why slow down at the end? I've never seen a reason to. Mark Spector's getting suited and booted and refuses to. You can say it. Go quietly into that good night as he infiltrates that old Kips Bay embassy owned by none other than the Latvarian Lion himself. We've got Moon Knight versus Doctor Doom and all sorts of collateral damage. If we've got comics, we've got history, and I'll be your guide through it all. Head over to patreon.com HSPP and sign up to the Key Keeper or High Council tiers now to see what happens when a left fist of Conchu takes a swing at the greatest villain the world has ever known. Join us. That's season one. We'll be back with Amazing Spider-Man number 26 in four weeks. This gives us time to set up the next group of choices for the bonus episode chosen weekly by our patrons and get a chance to set up a buffer zone between creating and posting of each episode, which I think will increase the quality of the podcast overall. In the meantime, these four weeks won't be empty. They'll be filled with the bonus episodes I had the most fun recording. That's the first bonus episode, my first comic book read ever, and the episodes covering the greatest fighter in the Marvel Universe, the immortal Iron Fist. I'm not one for speeches, lying, so I'll be brief. Thank you so much to all listeners who've taken time out to give your ears, your eyes, your likes, and your comments to this podcast. I've learned so much about the war crawler, people, and events of the mid-1900s, and it's been an amazing 26 weeks of philosophizing, learning, and laughing. I'm looking forward to more. To our high society patrons, 
That's the big three, the right minders, the key keepers, and the high council. Parker's 11. Thank you so much for your support and your season one lapel pins are in production. I say it all the time, I mean it all the time. Your support is everything to this podcast. Everything, and means so much to me. I can't say thank you enough, but again, thank you. As I said in the bonus episode, Doom treading through Yamapalu. This entire season is dedicated to my great friend, Tony Smashmouth, better known as Chris Campbell, who told me once that if I wanted to hear an awesome story, I needed to start writing. And when I'm not doing this, I'm doing that. Shout out through the ether till we meet again, my brother. I love you. All that said, that's all that said. Please like, please comment, please share, please take care, and please, especially in these trying times, please, please, please think of the world and be true to yourself. And remember, with great power comes great responsibility. See you in four. I'm out of here.